The Wobblies is a nickname for an early 20th century union called Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW. Book author Ahmed White writes, quote, Like the Christian martyrs to whom they have been likened, the Wobblies were left to find confirmation and redemption mainly in their own destruction, unquote. Yale Law School graduate Ahmed White has a book titled Under the Iron Heel, a takeoff from a novel written by novelist Jack London. Professor Ahmed White is currently teaching labor and criminal law at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Professor Ahmed White, in your book, In the Acknowledgements, you say, I am especially beholden to my late father, Marion Overton White, who knew quite a lot about hard work and repression. Why did he know a lot about repression? My father was a civil rights lawyer in uh, South Louisiana. He died a few years ago and grew up poor, like uh, like like many people um, in that part of the world, um, and, um, and, and grew up working hard. He grew up on a small cotton farm and uh, continued to do hard physical work all of his life. He was a farmer in addition to a civil rights lawyer, and as a civil rights lawyer, he had his share of trouble uh, with uh, local elites and politicians, as well as to some extent with, uh, with federal officials, and on a couple of occasions narrowly avoided going to... Uh, to jail himself. In, in fact, I, I recently discovered he was uh, maybe nearly prosecuted for criminal anarchy uh, in uh, in the late 1960s, a crime uh, that many of these wobblies would have been familiar with. So we better go the what were the wobblies question. <laughs> so the wobblies uh, were uh, members of the Industrial Workers of the World, an organization formed in 1905. Uh, with the aim of organizing the industrial working class uh, and in doing so not only with the aim of improving working conditions and challenging the authority and the power that capitalists wielded in the industrial workplace, but also the idea was ultimately uh, organizing a vast general strike um, nationwide, even worldwide in scope that would, uh, the Wobblies thought, uh, be used to bring down industrial capitalism and uh, pave the way for the creation of what they imagined would be a workers' commonwealth, uh, free of the uh, the the oppressive features of uh, what they call the system of wage labor. Where did it start? So the organization was formed in Chicago in the summer of 1905 by a, a fairly broad coalition of uh, unionist of um, of radicals of various stripes, uh, socialist and anarchist, uh, with again this idea that they would create this 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 industrial union that would organize workers, and this is key without regard for skill, uh, without regard for ethnicity or race, without regard for sex. Why was that necessary? So this was necessary because, with some notable exceptions, uh, the labor movement as it existed in the early 20th century uh, was often in, was typically indifferent 
uh, to the interest and needs of workers who were not skilled, uh, workers who were black, who were um, who were women, who were um, from um, disfavored ethnic groups, Southern Europeans, uh, Latinos, um, people who were, for that matter, Jewish. Um, these were all groups that had a difficult time finding any representation in the labor movement as it existed in 1905. And the IWW's idea, the, the Wobblies' idea, uh, was to uh, to rectify that. Um, that that was a, a central motivation in the formation of the union. What's the origin of the nickname Wobblies? That is uh, a, a mystery that's yet to be fully resolved. Uh, I looked into that as I think as everyone who's written about the Wobblies. There there are some theories about that. Um, um, some of which involve some 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 not very uh, appealing um, ethnic stereotypes. Um, that I, I don't care to repeat. Uh, but, but even those theories are not particularly well supported anymore or, or certainly not universally supported. So the, the ultimate answer is it's not clear uh, where this word comes from, even though uh, in short order, the term was used almost universally to describe members of this organization by the Wobblies themselves, by uh, everyday people, journalists, as well as by the unions, uh, by the unions' enemies. I know this is tricky to even talk about, but how much credence do you give to one of the stories I saw, where a Chinese restaurant owner would refer to the Wobblies because he had trouble speaking? I mean, uh, speaking the W. Yes. Uh, so that is one of the most sort of uncomfortable theories. Uh, about uh, the origins of the of the word a, f- a few years ago, a few decades ago, that was probably the leading theory uh, in where this word came from. But in 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 recent years, it's kind of fallen into less favor. At least there's less confidence about whether that's a lot less confidence about whether that's where the word uh, where the word comes from. So uh, so I, I I don't know, but um, but I know that it's not um, widely embraced anymore as a an account of what uh, of, of how this word came about in the front of your book on one page you have a very short quote we will grind you revolutionists down under our heel and we will walk upon your faces the world is ours we are its lords and ours it shall remain from jack london the book the iron heel from 1908 why did you use that quote so that quote seemed particularly apt um given uh what i think is the importance of jack london himself uh his work his writings his his personality his image uh to the wobblies uh, own experience uh, to the way they understood themselves and the way they understood the world in fact one of the themes in the book is that uh one can't understand Jack London and his legacy and his life um, without understanding his relationship to the IWW, just as one can't understand the IWW or the Wobblies without uh, without uh, confronting their relationship to Jack London. And more specifically, uh, the connection there is that London was, as many people know, a, a very, very prominent uh, socialist uh, in the early 20th century. 
Uh, and um, the book that this quote comes from and that the title of my book derives from uh, is in some ways a story, in many ways, a story inspired by the Wobblies experience, a story about um, about oppression, about the, the, the vicious suppression of um, a radical uprising. Uh, and it's pretty clear that, again, London drew inspiration from the IWW. But at the same time, uh, the book, for many people uh, in that day, including the Wobblies, functioned as a kind of primer on um, socialist thought and socialist theory. And it was also a sort of warning to people like the IWW what might happen to them uh, in the way of uh, experience in repression. And in that regard, it was kind of prophetic. So ultimately, I, I, I guess I kind of thought it, it, it would be impossible really to do justice to this story uh, without entwining it with London's book and to some extent London's life. Jack London was a West Coaster, born in San Francisco, only lived to be 40. Who was he? How much so, did yes. he write? So London, yes, was born uh, in in uh, the Bay Area in California and, and died quite young. He died, ironically, um, just at the time when the IWW was getting its its feet under it, was, was beginning to evolve into a potent organization. Um, there's a lot of debate, ongoing debate, about how uh, much of a socialist London remained at the time of his death. Um, and, and I can't resolve that and don't try to resolve that in the book, although there is some indication that in, in many ways his, his increasingly ambivalent relationship to socialism uh, was informed by some of the same kinds of frustrations that motivated the Wobblies to create their organization and to distinguish it increasingly from the socialist movement. And that is to say uh, a kind of disquiet or even disgust with uh, with the reformism that uh, ran deep in the socialist party and in the socialist movement in the 19 uh, in the 19 teens. But yes, Jack London was an extremely prolific writer. Most people know him through um, works like um, <clears throat> The Call of the Wild and uh, White Fang or uh, Martin Eden. Um, but beyond that, he wrote um, a great number of short stories, um, as well as political essays and tracts uh, that um, explored and, and propounded for the rest of the world his thoughts uh, about, um, about socialism, about, um, uh, about radicalism, and about capitalism and industrial capitalism. And the one thing I would add is, you know, there's an irony in London's relationship to the IWW in that he was famous and wealthy uh, through much of his short adult life. But he, um, what's not ironic uh, or contradictory in any way is um, the similarity of his upbringing uh, and his early life to the lives of many of these IWWs, these wobblies. He, he grew up in considerable poverty. Um, he he hit the road as a young man uh, and traveled around the country, uh, hoboing his way around in, in the fashion of many of these wobblies. Uh, and he did some of the work that they did. Uh, and in some of his writings, uh, chronicle that experience in, in very affecting and very moving ways. When did you first read him? Just so, like, like many people of my vintage, I, I first read Jack London as a a, a quite young boy. I think my 
my brother was assigned, my older brother was assigned the Call of the Wild uh, in, I forget what it would have been, maybe maybe sixth or seventh grade, and I being several years younger than he, uh, picked up uh, this copy and, and read it. And, and again, like many people, was quite enthralled with the story. And um, over time, I think even as a teenager, it began to register with me that even that book was was not just a book about a dog, uh, but a reflection on some broader issues, um, in, including issues that that ended up bearing on this account of the IWW, questions of power and authority and industrial capitalism. When did you personally connect Jack London to the Wobblies and your story in this book? Um. I began writing this book about seven years ago, six or seven years ago. The connection to London popped up here and there even before then uh, in writing shorter pieces uh, on the IWW uh, or in uh, reading about London. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a Jack London scholar as such, but uh, but I've, I've maintained an interest in his work over the years um, and and this connection to the, the IWW um, began to appear um, <clears throat> or, or to uh, to register with me, that the significance of it began to register with me, I would say, before I even began to write the book. <clears throat> How did the IWW start? So the union, again, was founded in 1905 um, by dissidents from the conventional labor movement. People were unhappy uh, with its uh, its scope, with uh, the kinds of people it, it recruited, the kinds of interest it represented. What's interesting is uh, how diverse was the group of people, the coalition that helped uh, that that organized the IWW in 1905, and how that inevitably created a lot of ambiguity about what this union would be. And how it would go about the work of organizing uh, the industrial working class. So, uh, a very conspicuous uh, figure in the founding of the union, maybe the most famous person in founding the union, was uh, Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party. And Debs remained a sympathizer with the IWW for all of his life, but he, like many socialists, um, disassociated himself from the union over the years. Because the IWW's vision, as it evolved in its practices, uh, came to be quite different from, and in some ways at odds with the socialist program. In particular, uh, the IWW um, rejected what its leaders called parliamentary socialism, uh, the notion that radicalism, the radical vision could be effectively pursued by electoral politics. While as the mainstream of the socialist movement, including Eugene Debs, um, continued to believe in uh, in the efficacy of organizing uh, through uh, electoral politics or this this concept of parliamentary of parliamentary socialism, uh, so the IWW, uh, within a few years of its founding, had had rejected this and um, pretty decisively and. Uh, instead embraced this program of um, essentially syndicalism, of of activism built around unionism fundamentally. And that was their idea. That's what they were going to do. Uh, for about a decade after the union was founded, it, it had considerable difficulty uh, making much headway with that 
program. It was pretty good at insinuating itself into larger labor disputes that either arose spontaneously or uh, arose um, on the basis of um, of of organizing efforts by people who were maybe not that closely associated with the IWW or where the union had people there in these workplaces, but not a lot of them. The union was good at taking hold of these disputes when they emerged. So uh, uh, very famously in 1912, it led uh, a strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, a textile workers strike, the Bread and Roses strike, it's sometimes called. A year after that, um, an, an equally large strike in Patterson, New Jersey, among silk workers. It was pretty good at that. Um, it, what it was not good at was building lasting membership uh, out of these affairs. And that, that took quite a while for the union to, um, to, to find a way to accomplish, and, and not until the dawn of America's entry into the First World War uh, did it show itself, did it find a way. Uh, to build some membership um, that was was lasting, um, and and that 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 gave it a kind of foundation of um, of institutional um, support in the form of dues uh, that was conducive to again building a functional organization. What specifically would be the difference? And you've touched on it, but I want to ask you again. The difference between belonging to the AFL-CIO, or in those days the AFL, and belonging to the IWW. What are the differences in those two different unions? Yeah, so um, belonging to the IWW um, was um, often um, the province of people who were not... um, being recruited by AFL unions to start with. Uh, in other words, the people who comprised uh, the IWW uh, tended to be unskilled workers, especially by the late 19-teens and early 1920s when this, 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 this story of repression uh, began to unfold uh, in, in a very significant way. Uh, they tended to be migratory workers in industries like uh, agriculture, uh, lumber, um, uh, construction workers, uh, oil workers, mostly west of the Mississippi River, uh, who were not going to be organized by AFL unions anyway. Um, by dint of, again, uh, the industries they worked in and the fact that they were unskilled workers or semi-skilled workers. Uh, the AFL unions tended to be um, where they existed um, fairly well-structured, um, bureaucratized is a word uh, sometimes used to describe them. Uh, the term business unionism is sometimes applied um, to AFL unions in this period, which is to say they were organized in a business-like fashion. Um, the IWW unions were not generally like that. Uh, the workers they organized were fairly footloose. Uh, they were poor as a rule. Um, they were... Um, uh, many of them committed to the union's revolutionary aims, they tended to have less interest in uh, the kind of, again, business unionism that, that characterized AFL unions. Uh, that's not to say that IWW unions were completely chaotic uh, in nature, but um, there was some truth to the criticism often levied at them at the time of the description often made of them 
uh, at the time that they were not the models. They were not models of, of um, the most effective kind of um, internal organization. A word you use often in your book, and I want to be careful how I pronounce it because it's not a word I've seen a lot in my own life, is syndicalism. And there are criminal syndicalism laws. What does syndicalism mean? So in the broadest sense, syndicalism uh, denotes uh, the politics of organizing around workers and the workplace and, and ultimately unions. And so the IWW was a syndicalist organization in the sense that that was its main focus, its main ambition, its main idea. It uh, Plenty of leftist movements in the United States, including in the world, including the Socialist Party and various communist parties, had this idea that they would work with unions, but the unions would be an adjunct to their political organizing. The IWW was different. The, the core of its organizing efforts, the core of its radicalism would be the unions themselves. Um, and so in that sense, the union was, um, the IWW was syndicalist. Criminal syndicalism laws were laws that were first enacted um, in 1917, um, mainly at the state level, to some extent municipal level, but mainly at the state level, mainly west of the Mississippi River, and in every case with the specific purpose of criminalizing membership in the IWW. So that was the syndicalist part of them. These laws were enacted with the idea, we're going to make being in the IWW a crime. Now, the people behind these laws knew that it would be politically suspect, or legally, I should say, suspect, to do that in a completely overt way, to just write a law that said, if you're in the IWW, you're a criminal. That They, they figured the courts would not be happy about that, and they were right. Uh, and so they came, uh, they came up with a, a stratagem to get around that. So what they did was to, uh, to draft these laws in a way that made it a crime to um, advocate what they call industrial or political change by means of sabotage or crime or violence, and also made it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that kind of prohibited radical change. That was the essence of criminal syndicalism, and, and you can see how easily uh, it, it made it to, to criminalize, to prosecute IWW members. They were members of an organization that uh, prosecutors could very, very easily convince juries um, was committed to this kind of prohibited social change. Um, and they could and they did so in a context where relatively few people charged with this crime if they if they were members of the IWW were inclined to um, to um, disclaim membership in the organization. The, these were these were as a rule people were very proud of their um, affiliation with the IWW. Uh, and so when they were prosecuted for criminal syndicalism uh, like clockwork, uh, they admitted as much. And then the case is turned on this, the, the simple question, is the IWW organization committed to these prohibited forms of social change? Now, there is considerable room to doubt that the union was uh, committed to violent forms of revolutionary change. 
Um, and the prosecutors, I think it, many of them knew that. Um, but it didn't matter in most cases because they were able to use the union's rhetoric um, effectively to show, to convince jurors that indeed the union was violent in its, uh, in its conception, or at least it was committed to sabotage as a strategy for organizing. Um, it, again, it didn't matter that when you kind of got into the, um, the details of what this, this organization was really about and to the facts, uh, that there are considerable questions um, that could be raised about whether this was true. The case is turned on the prosecutor's use of that rhetoric, of the union's rhetoric, its publications, uh, the speeches that its uh, members engaged in, its, um, its songs um, that were, that were a, a, a critical part of the union's identity. Um, they convinced these juries, again, very easily in most cases, yes, this is a, a revolutionary organization committed to these prohibited means of change. These people are members of it. Uh, therefore, they are guilty of criminal syndicalism. Let's pack them off to prison. Speaking of songs, back in 1979, there was a documentary done called The Wobblies, directed by Stuart Byrd and Deborah Schaefer. And uh, there are songs in there, so we took some excerpts, just 30-second excerpts. The first one I want you to comment on when we run it is called In the Good Old Picket Line. It come, comes off of a song called In the Good Old Summertime. Let's run that and get your reaction to it. In the good old picket line, in the good old picket line, the workers are from every place, from nearly every climb. The Greeks and Poles are out so strong, and the Germans all the time. But we want Professor, what are you hearing there? So the first thing I would say is, um, as I think we, we hinted at earlier, these songs are central uh, to the union and to the union's identity. And I think to appreciate why it's important to put ourselves back in 1917 or 1920 or, uh, or, or, or somewhere in that period uh, when the world of media was very different than it is today. Uh, when um, even, you know, radio as a, as a commercial um, um, medium was, was essentially un, undeveloped uh, and, um, and telephones were extremely uncommon and, uh, and, and, and print media was the only other dominant media uh, besides oral media. And the IWW, of course, it lived, they lived in that world. The Wobblies lived in that world. They understood that. Then uh, they understood that songs were essential to imparting their message, their ethos, their identity to the people they were trying to recruit. Um, and likewise, to, ma to maintaining among their members the kind of morale, um, the kind of a sense of, of, of righteousness um, that was absolutely essential to accomplishing what they were trying to accomplish, whether it was standing firm on a picket line um, or whether it was going to prison um, to meet their fate behind bars, um, whether it was uh, being arrested by some, some, some brutal local sheriff 
the songs were absolutely essential to them, to maintaining this esprit de corps, this, this sense of morale, this sense of common identity. And they were all the more essential um, for a reason that, that goes back to, in a way, what we said earlier about Jack London. Um, one reason Jack London was so important to the union was that this was an organization that was about the uplift of the working class. The idea that workers would uh, would triumph over the wage labor system, uh, not just because they were workers, but because they were enlightened and they were, they were fundamentally well aware of how the system worked, how the world worked, and of the historical mission that they had inherited. And all that required education. Uh, these workers they organized um, were people who were lucky to have gone past the sixth or seventh grade in most cases. There were exceptions to that, but they, but they, were, they tended not to be particularly well-educated. Um, and so the union put a, a great premium on uplifting its members, uh, on teaching those who didn't know how to read to read, on encouraging those who did read to read things that were important and, and, and significant and substantial. Uh, and not just the dime novels and things like that that proliferated back then. Well, that takes us back to the songs. Um, many of the the people who were recruited were were not literate um, or were not um, particularly well uh, capable of of reading. And the songs, uh, among many other purposes, filled in uh, that that gap, uh, allowed folks who were uh, not able to to navigate the union's um, literature and the literature they they encouraged their members to read. It, it gave them a way of understanding, at least in a rudimentary fashion, what this organization was about. Here's and another so far, clip of, uh, I'm sorry, are you finished? Oh, yes. No, I'm sorry. <clears throat> uh, here's another clip from another song called Rebel Girl. It's, it, it was called the Joe Hill song. And it talks about some of the stuff you hear today about the rich. Let's listen. There are women of many descriptions In this queer world as everyone knows Some are living in beautiful mansions And are wearing the finest of clothes There are blue-blooded queens and princesses Who have charms made of diamonds and pearls but the only and thoroughbred lady is the rebel girl. Comment, sir. Indeed. So this is one of the most famous of the IWW songs and one that famously refers to uh, one of its most notable figures, uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, who was a, a very young woman when he when she emerged as a, a prominent organizer uh, in the union's uh, ranks. She didn't stay with the IWW all that long, later became famous as uh, infamous uh, as a communist. Um, and the song itself and the, the verses you alluded to are also significant in, um, in the way they kind of proudly contrasted uh, the position of the people this organization was organizing and that was composed of uh, to um, to the kind of villainy of wealth in industrial America. So 
you know, many unions then and now uh, have a kind of conventional view that the purpose of unions is simply to uplift uh, in a material way uh, the working class, to give people a, a, a better lifestyle, a, a better condition, a better um, 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 set of material conditions. Um, the IWW didn't disclaim that. Um, but it was overtly revolutionary, and there was a strong element in its um, in in its approach reflected in this song of condemning um, material culture and the wealth that came um, that the wealth that that uh, that that was the lot of uh, the industrial capitalists themselves, and so that runs through many uh, many of their songs. I mean, one of one of my uh, favorite is. Uh, is one titled uh, "We Fed You All a, a Thousand Years," um, and and just that that one line, the title that the primary verse uh, captures a, a related notion that it's it's we who have built this civilization, uh, not you powerful industrialists, not you middle managers, not you the intelligentsia. Uh, of of modern capitalism, it's the working class, and this is a theme that runs through many of their songs, and it can often be you know very powerful and very affecting when you connect it to men and and women who uh, who work very hard, work with their hands, uh, and 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 worked um, for often very little compensation in in terrible conditions, for them to understand and to claim uh, this this position that is it is we who built this world and it is we who will lead humanity to a promised land uh, whether one believes that their philosophy was well founded or not uh, there's something quite affecting about that from your research and study over the years is there do you have any example of where communism has worked well you know it's like uh, like every political system or every economic system it's a question of who did it work for uh, now, I think we would be fools uh, to sit here, even the most uh, ardent leftists, and deny uh, the horrors and the dysfunctions of 20th century communism or the difficulties that, that, that lie ahead for people who remain committed to socialism or communism or some other kind of radicalism to, to deny the, the enormous challenges uh, that, 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 are, that, that are, you know, are, are, um, are there in the way of. Um, that await anyone who would try again um, in a serious way to uh, to move us in that path. Uh, there is no doubt about that. The, there are difficulties there. There's a sordid history there. And I think the first thing that people on the left need to do is acknowledge that. Um, now, again, uh, these social systems work for some people and, and not for others. Uh, oftentimes, communism worked for people who are not particularly sympathetic. Um, but, but in many in many ways, 20th century communism did do some good things for people in educating uh, in educating folks and preserving the viability in rural areas and uh, of, of communities in rural areas, that sort of thing, and uh, industrial production, and in, in you know at, at enormous cost in defeating Nazism, uh, for instance. But again, I I, I uh, would acknowledge, as I think your question implies that there's uh, a history there that has to be acknowledged and there are difficulties there in building uh, a kind of any kind of socialism that that history alerts us to and i would just i would add to that something that direct 
directly connects to this story about the Wobblies. I don't know how viable their program would have been. I, I don't. I argue in the book that repression was important in the union's ultimate demise in the 1920s. Um, but I, I don't mean to suggest in saying that that the IWW was destined to succeed had it not faced the kind of repression that it did. It had other important difficulties in its path. There's no doubt about that. Um, but having said all of that, um, I think it's it's useful, especially for people on the left, especially for people who imagine a different world than the one we live in, to study the IWW because they had a, a different vision than did many socialists and communists, one that at root had a certain skepticism about the power of the state and the dangers that state-sponsored socialism uh, would present. Uh, the IWW was recruited by the communist movement when it emerged in the wake of the, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, and they rejected those entreaties, um, in part in large part because they had a different vision, because they were skeptical about a leftism that put its faith in the power of the state and building a powerful, capturing the state as the Bolsheviks did and building a powerful state as Stalin himself sort of bragged about, that, that we, would, we would abolish the state in the way that communists uh, imagine, but we would do so by building the most powerful state that the world had ever seen. The, the Wobblies were skeptical of that. And again, I, I'm not saying that their approach was necessarily a, a better one or a more successful one or one that could succeed. But but they, at least among leftists, they were prominent in their sense that there's a danger here. And I, it, there's there's in, in some ways that's not surprising because they, by 1970, 1918, 1919, they were already experiencing, experiencing the power of the state, the power of the state to repress people like themselves. <clears throat> How long, 1905 to what year were the Wobblies uh, an effective organization of any kind? I would say their most effective years were between 1916 and about 1920, 1921, 22, 23. Um, by 1924, 1925, uh, they were in, um, in real crisis and in, in rapid decline. And by the uh, late 1920s, they were still able to occasionally uh, take hold of a labor dispute um, that had maybe deeper origins and turn it into something uh, significant. They did that in Colorado, where I live, in 1927, 1928, in a big coal strike. And they later did something similar with uh, workers organizing, workers who were building the, uh, uh, the, the Boulder Dam uh, in, in Nevada. Uh, but but that was those episodes were exceptional. By the latter part of the 1920s, they were a broken organization. Uh, there's no doubt about that. They only had a couple thousand, a few thousand members here and there. They weren't collecting anything in the way of dues, uh, and they really were not um, were not able to, with, with the exception of these these um, these occasional events like the strikes I mentioned or the organizing I mentioned. Nevada and in Colorado, uh, they were really not an effective organization. So their 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 heyday, uh, as as some have put it, was nineteen 
1917 into the early 1920s. How many? What was the total at the at, when they were the most robust? So the estimates vary um, in terms of the number of members they had at any particular time during that uh, period, from I don't know 60, 70 thousand to maybe 150 thousand. Uh, those seem to be pretty good estimates. I would tend to uh, to err on the higher side of that um, that range of estimates, maybe over 100, 150,000. We have to add to that in, in figuring the union's effective support. Um, a point that 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 we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, and that is the difference between IWW unionism and conventional AFL unionism. This was not uh, a, an organization that adhered to the kind of business unionism model. It was not, it's not particularly well bureaucratized. And so what that does is create more uncertainty about how many members it had, uh, and an uncertainty exacerbated by the fact that the federal government, when it prosecuted the union, seized its records and apparently, apparently destroyed them. Um, but the, there, there's also some uncertainty to do with um, the way people tended to pass through the IWW, um, to, to, to go in and out of the union um, in a way that um, wasn't typical of, wasn't as typical of conventional AFL unionism then or now. It's, it's pretty easy to figure out how many union, how many members, I don't know, the the Steelworkers Union has today or this year. With the IWW 100 years ago, it's very difficult because people, again, passed in, in and out of the organization. So people who talk about how strong the organization was in, say, 1970, 1916, 1918, uh, often put an asterisk next to their estimates, um, one that reminds their audience Yes, the union may have had 60 or 80 or 100,000 members in this particular moment, but it also had a lot of people who were loyal to it, um, who had been members, and maybe would be members again. Um, and so when you look at it that way, I think it's reasonable to add a couple hundred thousand um, to the ranks of people who you might reasonably call wobblies, um, even if they didn't at any particular moment have the union's red card uh, with, with you know, pay, their membership paid at that moment up to date. From that 79 documentary, Wobblies, there were a number of people that talked through it, but they didn't ID them. So we don't know this fellow's name, but here's a, a man in his older years talking about being, talking about strike breakers. Let's listen. The work was so rough. We had to use hand trucks, and two men would load that truck freight. We'd have to truck it over very rough floors to the side of the ship to be loaded. We worked 10 hours. People were getting hurt, one after another. Just going to the hospital, we had no medical uh, safety rules or anything like that. When the contract ran out, you go in for a contract, nothing doing. We had to go out on strike. The results of that, while we were on strike, people were transported from different parts of the country to break strike. Some would be having, you know, guns as same as they were at the law, and they would be 
these vans going down, they would be escorted by police escorts on motorcycles. And a striker would have as much chance before the strike breakers as a rabbit would have before a gunner. What's the, I mean, when you listen to this, what's the difference between then, back in the early 20s or whatever, and now? You know, the, the main difference is that um, that kind of repressive power doesn't have to be used um, because workers aren't active in the way that the Wobblies were. There are not as many unionists, um, and um, things aren't as militant as they are. And, and I don't say that to blame workers today uh, because I'm not. I haven't been to prison, and I don't particularly plan to go. But people who romanticize the IWW, and I suppose I'm one of them, um, we have to remind ourselves uh, what those men and sometimes women suffered uh, for the kind of unionism they engaged in. And to come back more, I guess, pointedly to your question, that capacity for repression, I think, is still there. And it awaits anyone who would do what these people did. Um, The IWW was, again, an overtly revolutionary organization um, that uh, not only threatened the business interests, the class interests of some powerful capitalists, I think that was the main factor behind the union's repression, but they did so in a way that was effectively presented as a seditious threat to the social order. Now, again, we can argue with, and I think we should, with how bona fide that contention was. This this union was not seditious. But the fact remains it was effectively characterized as as a seditious organization. Uh, The potential to do that is still there with all kinds of organizations. I mean, we're just coming out of um, a multi-decade war on terrorism. Uh, There were real terrorists, don't don't get me wrong, who needed to be uh, contained. But that that whole period made clear just how easily the charge of sedition or, in that instance, terrorism could be extended beyond legitimate targets to people who are not legitimate. And I think looking back at that, that recent history and looking back at what happened to the Wobblies, um, you would you would I, I, I think people who want to see the labor movement resurgent, who have a kind of romantic attachment to the kind of militancy that characterize IWW organizing, they have to remember that there is great peril uh, in doing what these people uh, what these people did. How were they repressed and who repressed them? So the 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 repression the IWW dealt with fell into two broad categories, legal and extra legal. Um, the extra legal repression was basically vigilantism, and it was rampant uh, during this period, the late 19-teens, early 1920s. Um, it resulted in some, some fairly notorious episodes where IWWs or Wobblies were killed, uh, including um, an event in Everett, Washington in November 1916, uh, uh, the so-called Everett Massacre where at least six and maybe double that number of Wobblies were shot and killed by uh, a group of maybe a couple of hundred uh, police and, vi- and vigilantes who met a boat, a ferry boat they were, they were, uh, they were trying to, um, they were on, they were trying to disembark 
in this town of Everett, Washington, so that they could protest what had happened to other IWWs or Wobblies who had come to that town and and tried to support striking workers. Well, they were um, met at the docks, and the the boat was um, was shot up by this group of people, and a number of folks were killed. Uh, this was uh, again one of a number of a handful of episodes like this that claimed the lives of IWWs. Some members were lynched. The most famous would be probably Frank Little, a prominent member of the union who was uh, lynched in uh, Butte, Montana in the summer of 1917, uh, probably by agents of the Anaconda uh, Mining uh, Company. Um, And then there was, uh, you know, there were less lethal but much more common forms of vigilantism, people just beaten, tarred and feathered, that sort of thing, run out of town, um, without any sort of legal license to do so. So there was that category of repression, um, the extra legal repression. And then there was a great deal of legal repression. We talked earlier about uh, criminal syndicalism laws, the state, mainly state statutes that were used to imprison several hundred IWWs during this period, again, mainly in the Western states where the union was active. In addition to that, um, uh, uh, the better part of 200 IWWs were prosecuted, about 160 imprisoned for violating um, the uh, Federal Espionage Act of 1917. Um, they were charged with conspiring to interfere with the war effort um, by means of strikes and sabotage and other forms of, uh, of activism. Um, and in mainly in three mass trials between 19 trials themselves between 1918 1920 uh in first in chicago in sacramento and in kansas city um the majority of the union's leadership uh was convicted of uh violating this provision of the espionage act and they were they were put in prison um, and then there was another major form of legal repression the union dealt with, and that was uh, to be prosecuted for vagrancy. Um, here, the numbers are anyone's guess. I would say in the tens of thousands, that there were tens of thousands of cases of IWWs who were prosecuted for vagrancy. Vagrancy laws were very easy to enforce back then. Uh, essentially, it, it only took the word of the local sheriff or chief of police or arresting officer or whomever uh, to say um, you were vagrant. The laws themselves are extremely broadly worded. It essentially boiled down to you are the wrong kind of person in the wrong kind of place. Uh, we don't like having you here. You're making trouble. We want you out of here. The Wobblies were um, the very essence of that kind of person, that kind of unwanted person uh, in small towns where they tried to organize workers. And so thousands and thousands of them were um, picked up on vagrancy charges. Uh, oftentimes the charge was just a way of uh, running them out of town. They said, well, we'll you know, we'll throw you in jail in, unless you leave. Uh, but, but more than a few of them, thousands of them, in fact, were thrown in jail on vagrancy charges, um, locked up for 10 days, 20 days, sometimes six months or more, um, put on the rock pile, that kind of thing. Uh, so th- those those are the main ways that the union was repressed uh, during this period. And my argument is that it was extremely effective. Another 30-second excerpt of a song, and in particular, it's called uh, Painter Red. But I want to ask you, after it's over, 
why the word red is so often used in the book. Here's the excerpt. Oh, we hate this rotten system more than any mortals do. Our aim is not to patch it up, but build it all anew. And what we'll have for government whenever we are through is one big industrial union. Hooray, hooray, we're going to paint it red. Hooray, hooray, the way is clear ahead. We're gaining shop democracy and liberty and bread with one big industrial union. Professor White. Yes, so uh, then is now red was the color of, of the radical left and not just the IWW, but the IWW embraced red to the point that the union's um, um, the, the, the union's uh, membership card uh, was red, as was, to connect it back to the song and the others that you played, the union's famous Little Red Songbook. They published a book with uh, the verses of uh, the songs that were central to them and their identity, and the color of that was red, as were many other uh, features of uh, the IWW, uh, its iconography uh, was often uh, was often read as well. Now that connects back to the earlier question about repression. So there's an interesting history of uh, mainly state governments banning the carrying, the flying of uh, red or black flags. Uh, some of the earlier laws, and these laws tended to emerge in the late 19th, early 20th century. So the earlier ones tended to focus on black flags because black was the color of anarchy and anarchism. And the fear of anarchy preceded the fear and the, the hatred of the IWW. But as the IWW and to some extent other leftist groups came into prominence early in the 20th century, uh, some states, a number of states actually enacted laws banning the carrying or the flying of red flags. Um, now, oddly, not uh, interestingly, not a lot of IWWs were prosecuted for this, um, but they, they became actually a little more prominent in their use against communists in the 19, late 1920s, early, 19, uh, early 1930s. But there's a history there, and uh, like the criminal syndicalism laws, uh, a lot of these red flag laws are still on the books uh, in states across the country. They're not easily enforced because anymore because of con changes in constitutional laws involving the First Amendment, mainly, uh, that came about primarily in the 1960s and into the 1970s. But, um, but, but it's interesting. One can go online easily and find some of these laws still on the books here and there, uh, even though they're, they'd be very difficult to enforce, especially the red flag laws. <clears throat> I, I don't know what your take will be on this, but as I was reading your book, and we've been going through these trials here from January the 6th, I kept hearing some of the same rhetoric, some of the same repression in the minds of people that are involved in all this. And th give us your take on that, because undoubtedly you've been following some of the things that happened uh, a couple of years ago. Yes, there are some connections there. And I say that as someone who doesn't... Um, discount some of the dangers that were evident on January 6th. And as someone who doesn't particularly sympathize with uh, some of the some of the apparent aims uh, that that uh, that characterized uh, that that event. But, you know, having said that, 
there are some common themes here um, to do with the way um, the way groups and not just individuals are are demonized or criminalized, the way uh, threats are generalized beyond um, beyond uh, maybe a, a more reasonable understanding of of what they were or who was responsible for them, and the way this all this meaning what happened to the Wobblies and what's going on in the wake of January 6th raises questions about the limits of, of free speech and rights of association in a modern, ostensibly democratic society and, and, and questions as well about uh, about the First Amendment and, and how far the First Amendment can go and should go in protecting people's rights to protest. Um, I mean, I, I remind people um, that the IWW, a group that I quite obviously sympathize with, was not entirely innocent of the things that were charged against it. Um, and one should confront that in, in part because that's confronting that is important to confronting the broader question. Um, how far are you comfortable in allowing the state to go? in prosecuting people, including people who were merely associated with those who might themselves have been um, culpable. And some of those same questions emerge now in dealing with January 6th. Uh, yes, maybe some of these people who were there uh, had uh, you know, ill intention, and maybe they, they were plotting a coup or an insurrection, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Um, but that, but even if all that's true, that raises questions. How far are you going to go beyond those people in criminalizing the folks who were associated with them? And, and how are you going to criminalize incitement? Uh, how comfortable are you uh, in making a crime of incitement? Uh, because all of that happened 100 years ago uh, with this very different organization. And many people's lives were destroyed uh, as a result. And the state showed how brutal it could be. Um, in protecting its interest. My last question. Big Bill Haywood, who we did not talk about, was one of the organizers of the IWW back in the 1900s. Why did he end up going to Moscow to die? So there's still a debate about uh, about that. Um, he was sick. He was out on bail when he fled to uh, to Moscow. Uh, having been convicted in one of these uh, Federal Espionage Act trials, in the main one, in in nineteen um, in the summer of nineteen eighteen, uh, he'd gone to prison for a while. He was let out, like a lot, not all of a lot of the defendants in that case, and he fled then. And he yes, he was not in good health, um, but there's something else there, and that's um, the question whether he was ready to. Uh, abandon IWWism for communism. Um, he clearly did, to some extent, embrace communism because he took refuge in a communist uh, in a communist country. Uh, he, in fact, was one of several thousand uh, IWWs who are known to have switched their allegiance to the communist movement uh, during that period. And so, you know, that is part of the story of what happened to with Big Bill Hayward, how much of a communist, I guess I'm saying, was did he really become uh, when he sought refuge or exile uh, in the Soviet, um, in what was about to become the Soviet Union. Um, but there's still some debate about that. And I would say this, it was, um, 
an event that did not um, did not enhance the union's position, already tenuous position in that period. Many people regarded it as a betrayal, and many people who remained loyal to the IWW thought of it as a betrayal, not only because of uh, his going to a communist, Big Bill Hayward's going to a communist country, but also uh, because for them, uh, this was an act of, uh, of cowardice, that, that they were prepared to go back to prison, those who were out on bail, and some of them were still in prison. And so some people did charge him with, um, with, with cowardice. I'm not sure about that, um, given what I know about Big Bill and the other things he'd suffered in his day. But that's part of the story, to be sure. Our guest is a native of Louisiana. He teaches at the University of Colorado, teaches law, graduated from Yale, and he has a book out called Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies in the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Ahmed White, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.